want to see the touch of death. Yeah, come on, Karate Kid. Waste me. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the movie. Or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke came from. Regardless, each week we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen, or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the Mr. Miyagi to my Daniel-san, my co-host, Nate Storing. Nate, how are you? Hi! I- I'm good. Feeling a, feeling a little logy. Yeah? If I'm honest. Yeah, I think it was that, that lumberjack breakfast, but, mm, you know. That'll, that'll do it to you. Well, this week we watched The Karate Kid. You might remember this movie from Simpson episodes like season two's Dead Putting Society and season three's When Flanders Failed. Nate, this was your pick this week. So I'm just I'm basically going to turn it over to you at this point. All right. Sure. Well, so I guess to start, Adam, if you had to sum this up as someone Mm. who's new to the movie, how, how would you describe this movie? So from like a plot standpoint, it's sort of your traditional Hollywood coming of age tale of young boy is dropped into a new environment he finds himself at odds in his surroundings and through the magic of karate discovers himself but i feel like that's also being like a little bit reductive like it's very much a movie from the 80s with all of the good and all of the bad but in a very enjoyable way Okay, that makes no, that makes sense. Well, okay, but why did you want? Why did you pick? You know, because we have a very we have a very long list of movies to select from. Why, why did you select the Karate Kid to be your first pick for for this? Yeah, so I you know I think that there are so many movies on the list that are kind of classic movies, right? There, the Simpsons writers were mm-hmm. clearly really big on auteur cinema, that kind of thing. Totally, and this is one of those ones that is a little bit more unexpected, maybe because it would have been you know, in the popular culture of the time. And, right. you know, it, at the time, I think it was it was pretty well received. Uh, you know, there's at least at least one Oscar nod. But, you know, it just felt a little off the beaten path of what they what they had usually featured. And also, I was amazed that you had not seen this film again. <laughs> right? it's like it's kind of a feat <laughs> that you managed to not see it because I felt like it was everywhere when I was a kid. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. And I, and I just remember this movie really fondly. So, you know, a little bit of background for me. I I don't know exactly when I saw this. I couldn't have seen it in theaters. I must have seen it on VHS. Right, because it came out, What like, when when did it, it come out? 86? It came out in uh, 84. 84. So four oh, years yeah. before we were born. Right. And it wasn't probably even that popular on VHS. I mean, it would have been around, but, yeah, yeah. I think it was the number one video rental of 1985. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So three years before we were born. So, uh, but I probably saw it in the 90s. And I, I asked my parents even about if they remembered watching this movie or when I would have first seen it. Yeah. They couldn't remember. But my dad was like, I don't know, but I remember really liking that movie. And I know I've seen it a few times. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And then the other thing that I know is that when I was in maybe like grade uh, one or two, I started doing karate. Ah. I took karate classes. And so, you know, I don't know if there's a connection there or not. Again, I asked my parents. They couldn't remember why I wanted to do karate. But, you know, it was kind of a craze at the time. There were a lot of people trying it out. Yeah, it was definitely... I I never took part in any martial arts growing up, but I definitely had friends who did. One of my best friends, grow, like, at that age, 
he definitely took karate. I think a couple of my cousins took karate. So you're right. It was an early 90s hobby for young men was definitely karate or some other form of martial arts. Right, right. Karate was the one with the name recognition. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. For sure. Yeah, And so... Yeah, in terms of just giving a little bit of a summary of the film, I actually went back and found a VHS tape from 1987 uh, (laughs) online and wanted to just read what the back of that VHS tape said to describe this movie. So Amazing. Okay, take it away. All right, so. A fatherless teenager faces his moment of truth in The Karate Kid. An interesting beginning. Daniel, played by Ralph Macchio, arrives in Los Angeles from the East Coast and faces the difficult task of making new friends. However, he becomes the object of bullying by the Cobras. It's not what they're actually called in the film. (laughs) A menacing gang of karate students when he strikes up a relationship with Allie, played by Elizabeth Shue, the Cobra leader's ex-girlfriend. Eager to fight back and impress his new girlfriend, but afraid to confront the dangerous gang, Daniel asks his handyman, Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi in the movie, played by Noriyuki Pat Morita, whom he learns is a master of the martial arts to teach him karate. Miyagi teaches Daniel that karate is a mastery over the self, mind and body, and that fighting is always the last answer to a problem. Under Miyagi's guidance, Daniel develops not only physical skills, but also the faith and self-confidence to compete against tremendous odds as he encounters the fight of his life in the exciting finale. This entertaining film is one the whole family will enjoy. I, I love it. In fact, I do, not to like jump ahead too much, but there's there's something I kind of wanted to dig into here because it was one of the last notes I made when I was watching the film. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I really want to talk about this and I don't want to forget it. And this seems like actually a perfect entry point because the summary you just gave starts with a fatherless teenager faces his moment of truth. And what I think is super interesting about this movie is that it doesn't dwell on that at all. Yeah. Like right. it's, it's, we, we get that his mom is a single parent, but that's it. And I feel like if this movie were made today and ironically it was remade only like <laughs> a couple years ago and I didn't see that obviously. It's like a decade ago, man. Oh, geez, we're old. <laughs> but no, I feel like if it were remade today, They would dig way more into this backstory of Daniel having like either, you know, his father was abusive or like he had to overcome having like shin splints as a kid or there would there would be so much more time unnecessarily dedicated to this sort of backstory of why he is the way he is. Whereas this film, it's like, yep, he's he doesn't have his dad. Doesn't really matter. He obviously finds a father figure in Miyagi, but like the film just doesn't dwell on that at all and i kind of liked that like it's just it's very efficient storytelling like it's it's just it's a way to get him to get to where he needs to be and that's it yeah totally totally agree yeah i think the mother character is great and and that sort of backstory it just plays out in little ways like Mm -hmm. you know they moved to california because she got a really good job yeah and she and she's working and maybe and he at various points sort of expresses some uh, discontent about the fact that they had to move and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. She's not always around, but is clearly a good mom. And so it's very subtle the way that you get the impression. Oh, okay. She's, she's like a single mom. Dad's not in the picture for whatever reason. They don't ever talk about that. Yeah. It was so different because like I said, I feel like so many films today 
would make that sort of be the heart of the story. Whereas yes, here it was just a means to an end, right? Like it doesn't, it, it didn't, that's not what the story is about. So. For sure. It's, which actually makes it all the more ironic that it's so front and center on the back of the VHS. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. That's right? what I was like. I was so shocked that that was the first line. Cause I was like, that, well, that kind of has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Right. Like, totally. So a little more background, you know, again, released in 1984. The opening weekend, it made about $5 million. I think it was okay. beat out by Ghostbusters. Not, not mm. shocking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, top video rental of 1985. So, you know, I think, I actually think probably the VHS and maybe Civication was really how a lot of people experienced this. And it continued to have this really long lasting impact. Yeah, especially if it's at the same time as Ghostbusters. Right. I think it did outperform expectations at the box office, though, uh, even though it was definitely not not as big of a deal as, as Ghostbusters. Oh, okay. So producer Jerry Weintraub read a news story in 1983 about the child of a single mother who earned a black belt to defend himself against his bullies. And huh. so that so he wanted I think he got the rights to that story. And that's the, the seed of this. But then the writer, Robert Mark Kamen, combined this story with his own personal experience. So he was actually jumped after the 1964 New York World's Fair when he was a kid and, huh. and was, was inspired to learn karate because of that experience. So he, he started going to a teacher that was, you know, super aggressive and all about like right. fighting. And of course he was inspired to do this because he wanted revenge, right? right. But then he changed to a different teacher uh, who had been the student of a guy named Shojun Miyagi the father of Goju Ryo style of karate in Okinawa. Okay. Right? So so that's sort of where, you know, the character of Mr. Miyagi comes from. He's sort of right. inspired by this teacher who was the student of this real person, Shoju Miyagi. Okay. So I thought that was kind of cool. Also, John G. Avildsen, the director, also directed Rocky. Yes. Um, of course. And we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that. But Sylvester Stallone also kind of ribbed... Uh, you know, everyone involved that this was also kind of a ripoff of Rocky. <laughs> right. At like, least which, a little inc- bit. Incidentally, another film I've never seen. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we, maybe we should resolve that, too. Although, yeah. Anyway. Um, going into this blind, I didn't look anything up on IMDb. Didn't look up anything on Wikipedia. I wanted to go in as blind as possible. I knew mm-hmm. the basics because, again, it sort of permeates the pop culture. But the first thing I noticed was, like, it says directed by John G. Alvidson, I think mm-hmm. is maybe how you pronounce it. And my reaction was, who the hell is this guy? Like, I've never heard of this guy before. <laughs> did you look him up? I did look him up. And then I was like, oh, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. So a little bit about the director. So, yeah, he he also directed Rocky. Lots of other movies. Uh, Lean on Me is another one that, that some okay. people might be familiar with. Yep. Um, which, and, and, you know, a lot of his stories are these sort of underdog stories. Yeah, I was going to say. Right. And the, and there's a documentary about him that is something like King of the Underdog. So you get, oh, okay. you know, definitely a theme throughout his career. He was brought onto this film because he knew how to make low budget films. <laughs> okay. So he had a history of doing that of really making stone soup when it comes to movies. Yeah, I was going to I was going to say like th- this film is a lot of things, but like big budget is not one of them. No, which is I, not in a bad way. I yeah. sort of appreciate the sort of economical fil- filmmaking at play but it doesn't mm-hmm. it didn't feel like a giant blockbuster and it you kind of get the sense knowing that there were sequels that to come i kind of assumed that this was one of those things of like made on the cheap super successful and then the sequels got all the money but yeah i I'll, well, we can talk about that i 
I am not sure. I would be curious to actually look at the budget of the sequels because they don't they don't seem like they're no. made okay, on well, much more of go. a budget. Okay, fair enough. But but they but the second one definitely does have a bit more of a like a uh it definitely feels like a, a sequel in that it's trying right. to kind of be bigger than the first one. Right, exactly. Okay, fair but enough. just knowing a, a little bit about the production, it might have cost a little bit more, but still not huge budget. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, as a director, he's known for being very methodical. Apparently he was an editor before he was a director. And they make very good directors. Yeah, so I've heard. And he actually considered Frank Capra as one of his mentors. Okay. Which I I actually think is really interesting. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Really big on the sort of inspiring stories. Also, you know, like big on taking characters down to their lowest low and then bringing them back up at the end with an inspiring moment. Totally. Like that story structure you can see in a lot of his movies certainly like rocky karate kid you know definitely have that sort of vibe and then the other thing i loved watching this documentary about him is that this dude carries around a camera with him all the time Mm. all the time apparently on set he would always you know for the for earlier movies like rocky he always had an eight millimeter camera on hand all the time and was shooting rehearsals shooting his personal life everything all the time and in the documentary even later he's got his phone out the whole time <laughs> he's shooting he's at events he's shooting the audience he's shooting himself so he's a guy who seems seems to seem to have really lived his life through cinema through the camera so i think that's really cool well and of course our audience wouldn't necessarily know this but as someone who's known you for almost 20 years now that reminds me of a certain someone I know who (laughs) on many events we would go to would bring along either a camera or video camera to document said events. So it's, (laughs) it's interesting that you feel an affinity with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can really feel it in the naturalism of this movie for sure that he was always looking for the right angles and kind of getting everyone really comfortable in front of the camera. I I would say like there is something about these performances. Like Ralph Macchio is so good in this movie. Yeah. I I don't know what happened to the guy. Like I know he's been in a couple other films. (laughs) Like I I remember we watched in grade 10 drama class uh, Crossroads where he meets the devil (laughs) at the crossroads and they have a guitar off. But he's also in like some other big franchise film, isn't he? Oh, yeah. It's not a franchise film. He's in The Outsiders. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Which is so funny because I was like, oh, the Cobra Kai. I'm getting a real Outsiders vibe from this whole thing. And then I (laughs) forgot that Ralph Macchio was in The Outsiders. And that was before this movie. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so apparently when he came on set, all the other kid actors were like, oh, Ralph Macchio. He's the real deal. He was in The Outsiders. Interesting. (laughs) He has he has a manager. (laughs) <laughs> See, it's so interesting because I te- and I texted this to you. I thought that he was maybe at best 17 because he looks like he's about 12. Right. And then I, I I literally looked. I was like, how old was Ralph Macchio when he made the Karate Kid? He's 22. He yeah. does not look 22. No, he does not. It's convincing, actually. Yeah, his performance has this sort of youthful energy and he's a very believable sort of. Well, I think I even wrote in my notes, these guys are supposed to be high school seniors. Like he looks 12 yeah now the cobra kai's i kind of buy as high school seniors and elizabeth shoe i definitely do because she looks about 35 because of the big <laughs> teased hair yeah yeah purely i think it's purely the choices of costume and hair which are very of yeah the time. for sure but, but yeah but no like Machio, like he's definitely the highlight of the well him and pat Morita are the highlights of the film for me they are yeah. both 
they both give such beautiful performances, which I was not expecting from this sort of like family flick. Yeah, totally. Well, and again, that's the other thing that Abelson's really well known for is getting really excellent performances out of the actors he works with. Yeah. And that was also one of the reasons that I think he was chosen for this. But, you know, again, think about Rocky, right? Um, that, well, that's... I can't because I haven't seen it, but I do. Oh, I'm familiar with enough. it. Yeah, No, but I'm familiar you, with it yeah, enough yeah. to know that, yeah, that that totally tracks. And, and this is just a sidebar because I'm reading the credits and the only other name I recognized was Bud Smith, the editor, who hmm. he's William Friedkin's go-to guy. Oh, so he cut wow. the parts of The Exorcist. He cut Sorcerer. He cut Cruising one of our favorites. But that was like the only name in the credits. I was like, okay, so interesting. But of course, Friedkin's sort of famous for his like documentary style filmmaking. Right. And I knew that Rocky was sort of famous for having that a bit of that sort of more naturalist style to it. So all of this is sort of, you know, making sense going into it. So, you know, a few other Rocky connections that come Mm -hmm. to mind. So the song that happens during the, the close to the finale, they're at the tournament, right? Um, this is the, the, the best, which is, I believe the kids would say that song slaps. It is yeah. so good. I, I like cranked good. it up when it came on. I was like, nope. yeah, I did that, know that song. Yeah. That montage too is great. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. I love that montage. That was originally written for Rocky three. Oh, Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Sylvester Stallone passed on the song You're the Best mm. for Rocky Three, And so Ableton snapped it up for Karate Kid. The other obvious thing as well with, you know, in terms of connections to Rocky is just the kind of overall story structure. Right. Right. I found this really awesome visualization online called Rocky Morphology. Highly recommend looking this up. It takes all six of the original Rocky movies, puts them side by side and sort of categorizes the time that's spent on different parts of the movie. And so when you look at it, it's a very, very similar structure to the way the Karate Kid works as well. And I I, I just thought it was cool to actually see it visualized so clearly. Absolutely. Like, it really does feel a bit like Rocky for kids, in a sense. (laughs) It's funny that you would say that, because that's literally exactly the phrase... (laughs) that the writer and director were terrified people would use to describe oh, this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean it in a loving way. No, no, of course. But it, it did. Like it, yeah. I, I mean, again, having not seen Rocky, but familiar enough with it through pop culture, but it is a story of an underdog overcoming against all odds. Right. I understand that Rocky does not, spoiler for Rocky, I guess, but like I haven't even seen it and I know this. Rocky does not win his final fight. Right. But he goes the distance. He goes That's, the distance. He goes he, the distance. He can That's fly now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. And I think the thing is, that makes it sound like it's a really simple thing. Like it's just basically Rocky, but with kids. But I think that the underlying way, th- thing about that phrase is that it is a coming of age story. Just yes. like you said. Yes. That brings in a whole different story structure that is kind of blended with some of the tropes of Rocky. Totally. One of my favorite movies as a kid, because it was a coming of age story, was Stand By Me. And this, obviously, this is a very different movie from Stand By Me. But again, the coming of age sort of tropes and style choices felt similar. And I could see how this film would resonate when you are a kid. It's it's a it's watching it as a 33 year old is a very different experience than watching it as maybe like a 13 year old. (laughs) But I can see how how it would resonate to someone of a certain age. 
Yeah. Well, before we dig more into the film, do we want to talk a little bit about the Simpsons connection, as it were? Yeah, let's do it. I've got our friend, the Simpsons, the complete guide to our favorite family here. We're talking about the episode Dead Putting Society from season two. This is episode six, original air date, November 15th, 1990, written by Jeff Martin and directed by Rich Moore. Having rewatched The Simpsons with commentary, so you start to get a sense of who the directors are. I always really liked Rich Moore's episodes, and I believe he was... I think he left the show at one point to go be the like head director on The Critic, which is another one of our mm. favorite series. If you love Simpsons movie parodies, track down The Critic because <laughs> that's literally the entire premise of the show is just right. like, let's just do movie parodies <laughs> with John Lovitz. Uh, so here's the official Simpsons guide plot synopsis of Dead Putting Society. Homer is invited to Flanders' house for a beer. Homer sees Flanders' game room with beer on tap and observes that his son Todd is loving and brilliant in school. He thinks Flanders is bragging about his lifestyle and storms out. When Homer and Bart run into Flanders and Todd at the miniature golf course, Homer boasts that Bart will win the big miniature golf tournament. Flander advises Homer not to count on Bart since Todd will also enter. Despite his most ardent efforts, Bart's putting is lacking. Lisa senses Bart's anguish and shows him an ancient oriental method of concentration. Using his new zen approach, Bart's game improves dramatically. Homer challenges Flanders to bet on the tournament, and the two agree that the father of the boy who doesn't win must mow the other's lawn while wearing his wife's best dress. Both Todd and Bart are pressured to win. The score is tied as they approach the last hole. To avoid the dire consequences if they lose, Bart and Todd quit and call the game a tie. Without a winner, both Homer and Flanders put on their wife's clothes and mow each other's lawn. So very straightforward plot for a Simpsons episode. Very sitcom-y. Very sitcom-y. And very, uh, and also like super old fashioned, the like, you know, the bet to like, where where your wife's dress sort of thing is very silly. It's got a very I Love Lucy kind of plot. This is when the show was in its early days and we were texting each other and we both kind of remarked that like, we prefer the show at its zanier. I said last episode, that I kind of prefer like the Oakley and Weinstein era where they're taking risks and the the things were not as linear and a little more bizarre. Whereas this is just like a very straightforward, you right. know, ABC act one, two, three kind of plot. So. Yeah, totally. Totally. I, you know, I, I, yeah, I like it when it gets a little, a little bit more cartoony, a little bit more um, surreal, but you know, I, overall, still a pretty fun episode. And one thing I do love about this episode is the animation. I think there's some really amazing moments where there there is a sort of cinematic quality to this to this episode, especially yeah. around the mini golf. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it's it's early in the show's run when they're still kind of figuring out their look and their style. But as you say, it's it's got some really great moments in it along with some some very funny line one of my favorite running gags that i used to always do to my sister and i i forgot was from this episode was the what is the sound of one hand clapping which yeah that's a very memorable one <laughs> but it's interesting i didn't realize this and you you pointed out in the notes here that this was the first episode to like really feature flanders yeah totally and that that speaks to your point it's like they were still trying to find find their voice find and find the elements that kind of you know, uh, make up the Simpsons as we think of it. And um, one thing I definitely noticed with Flanders is he's not as diddly doodly as he is in later seasons. Yeah. He's very, he's more like God fearing and, and kind of played a little bit more straight. 
just interesting. You do get the the gag of like he's he calls Reverend Lovejoy in the middle of the night and his speed dial has like Reverend Church, Reverend Home. Like that becomes sort of a running gag. But, right. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like Flanders is less of a caricature and more. They're just playing him like he's the perfect the neighbor. neighbor, the perfect neighbor who's the polar opposite of Homer. So therefore he right. is, you know, religious and he is the goody two shoes, but almost not comically so yeah right 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 he's just he's just a seems to be a very uptight but also kind of a good and successful person is sort of the way he's played in yeah. this episode in a way that makes homer jealous even though flanders is not rubbing it in his face no um, not at all yeah which you know that's the whole thing so yeah and the karate kid sort of features uh, throughout this episode again it kind of like uh, we were saying this last time that they're really good at taking these parodies and then moving them in a different direction. It's not just like a straight parody front to back of the Karate Kid, but no. there are a lot of moments that are clearly inspired and then making explicit homages to the Karate Kid. Right. I mean, the most obvious one being Bart doing the like flying crane kick, but Lisa is sort of playing the Miyagi type. And yeah, mm-hmm. no, it was it was interesting how there's similarities without it just being a straight narrative repeat so let's jump into the movie and uh and you know talk through some of our highlights and lowlights so you know at the very beginning of the movie right we get daniel larusso main character ralph macchio and his mom they're moving from newark new jersey just down the road from where i live to the reseda neighborhood of los angeles which is like not a fancy part and so once he arrives you know it's kind of crummy and he's he's kind of starting to make friends but also maybe struggling a bit not not connecting with people but then he meets this girl Allie who he starts to flirt with and unfortunately her ex-boyfriend shows up with his gang of karate hoodlums on some dirt bikes <laughs> uh, and gets jealous and these these this is the Cobra Kai right they're the evil karate dojo that that Daniel is going to have to fight through but then thankfully you know even though he's starting to get bullied by this uh, gang of hoodlums he meets Mr. Miyagi, who is the handyman for his apartment complex, who is also secretly a karate master. <laughs> so at the beginning of the movie here, what were some of your highlights at, at, in this early part of, you know, characters or setting? I mean, I alluded to this earlier about how they don't dwell on the sort of backstory. They kind of just get into it. I, I liked the economy of the storytelling that was going on in this first part. I'll be honest. I, mm-hmm. if if I had one complaint with the film, I did feel it was like a half hour too long. The middle part kind of dragged for me. And, and yeah. we can talk about that more when we're discussing that. But I felt that the first chunk of the film works really, really well at establishing these characters, getting you to like the main character right off the top. I, again, I think Machio is very charming and likable, which is ironic because he's playing a character in a way that he's kind of got like this swagger that... Mm-hmm in the wrong hands could make him very obnoxious and annoying. Totally. Because it's also a little bit unbelievable that somebody who's new to a town doesn't seem to have any fear or whatever. He's confident, which I know I certainly would not be in his shoes. (laughs) And it's not until he starts getting basically beaten up that he starts to be less confident. So there is a way you could argue that he's kind of cocky, but he plays it in such a, like I said, he's so charming and likable that, he doesn't come across as being cocky, which I thought was remarkable. Yeah, it's a balancing act for sure. Yeah, they do. And they did a really good job with that. 
I I do love the moment when after he gets in his first sort of fight and he's wearing the sunglasses inside and his like mom is <laughs> yelling at him to take them off. And she has this ridiculous line of look, take them off. I want to see your baby browns, which yeah. I don't know why. Like, it's just it's so it made me chuckle because is that's not a thing. But yeah. And his and his reaction to his oh, oh, mom with the baby browns. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, like the most newer New Jersey totally. reaction. I love it. No, he's he's he is great. And the mom is really like she's as you alluded to earlier, like she's she seems like a great mom. Like she's yeah. she's trying. She's not annoying. She clearly loves her kid. She's trying to make ends meet. I think, again, if this film were being made today, they, they would maybe either go one of two directions of making her overbearing and un, unlikable or trying to you know develop her character into being she's had to overcome right. these things and trying to draw a parallel between the two but they're not yeah, they're she, just, she'd, she'd just, have to have a whole b plot and yeah exactly you'd be seeing that their rent is laid and you'd see her you know yeah. get, getting work and and all this kind of stuff and i don't know if yeah. you saw the newest ghostbusters movie the the new jason reitman one. no not yet but that's exactly what they do it's like it's yeah. very much about the kids but the mom's there and she's a single mom so we got to like build up her plot line and, and it, it kind of doesn't really work and it's it seems yeah. unnecessary it's like I like that the focus is just on him and his arc. Yeah. And I think the thing is, too, that, like, it's not because, you know, she's not a necessary character and whatever. She's a great character in this mm-hmm. movie. And it's just done with such economy. Like, you've used that word a lot. I think that's exactly right. She comes across as someone very likable. She's got complexity, right? Totally. Even though even though she's not on screen very much. And that's one of the things I like about a lot of the characters, is that even if they're not on screen that often, there's a bit of complexity to all of them. Yeah. So what about Allie and the introduction of Daniel LaRusso's love interest? So first off, I thought her name was Hallie. It wasn't <laughs> until you read that plot synopsis that I was like, oh, it's Allie? Okay, well, <laughs> good to know. Like Halle Berry? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Hallie, Halle Berry, but with an I. Because she, she does make that distinction right. that he's Allie with an I and he's Daniel with an L. She was fine. I think she's kind of the weakest. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it. Again, maybe it's because she just feels like she's older. I just never really buy their relationship. She Again, I and part of this is maybe where it's just that Hollywood thing. She she kind of like falls for him really quickly. Yeah. And I get that he is very charming and very nice. But this whole it just she immediately this new kid is in town and she she likes him. And it's just a little hokey. And that's and, a little plot magic, too. I yeah, think, because. Because I think what they're trying to do there is make it really clear that it's not Daniel who's coming on to her. Because right. because then you could you could make the Cobra Kai or whatever, Johnny Lawrence, right? The head of the Cobra right. Cobra Kai. It would be more of like an even-handed thing of like, oh, maybe he should like not Back do that. Off. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. instead, Allie's the one who's taking the lead. And so and so Daniel's really in the clear. And and I think I agree that I don't think it's totally believable, but I think that's why they did that. That that would make a lot of sense. I think the moment that actually and this is jumping ahead a bit, but the moment that my opinion of her changed more was the scene at the dance. Yeah. Again, a little like they were very handsy and like very like lovey dovey yeah. for people who a weren't even officially dating yet. And still at this point, maybe have known each other for a couple of weeks. But like, at least the chemistry was more believable there that I was like, okay, I can understand this relationship. But in those sort of early scenes, it's it's not fully earned. But I'm also willing to give it a pass because ultimately 
this is Rocky for kids. So right, it's right, like, right. OK, we got to We got to get this. We got to get this train moving. Yeah, fair enough. I think I agree on that. She moves along very, very quickly and is kind of very plot convenient throughout the movie. Yeah. Now, the interesting comparison is the Cobra Kai characters. Yeah. Who I can't even really, I don't even really know all their names. Johnny they're, is the main villain, yeah. I guess. But they're barely mentioned by name. Yeah. And like, I, I wrote in my notes, Cobra Kai, more like Cobra dicks, because they are just such <laughs> dicks in this movie. Like, they're yeah. like comically horrible to this person, mm-hmm. which, again, because of the audience and like, it's this is a film, I, I, I don't want to say this is a film for children because that seems reductive, but- Obviously, it's marketed towards a younger audience. So things are drawn a little bit more in black and white than shades of gray. So I understand yeah. that. But yeah, like I don't really understand their motivation for being such assholes, but right. they are assholes and like you immediately dislike them. I agree. I think the, my read on this is that at one point, Mr. Miyagi says something like, there's no such thing as a bad student, just bad teachers. Yes. And so I think that that's kind of the implication throughout the movie is that they're dicks because their sensei, Kreese, is a dick. Well, and 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 I think, you know, it's implied that Sensei Kreese went through some shit, right? right. Like he was in Vietnam. That Again, very subtle backstory. It's not fully explained, but you get this impression that he's a very damaged person and is kind of passing on that worldview to these kids totally. who are very impressionable. And so they have this sort of dog-eat-dog mentality that they're living life through. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely, especially when you first meet them and you you don't know any of that, you're just like, yeah, these kids are dicks, dicks on motorbikes. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, it's, it's, it's interesting because, I, I'm going to keep saying this, if this were made today, you know that there would be some backstory right. around right. why they're dicks, which is maybe not necessary because it's ultimately they're, they're there to serve the purpose of being villains and they do a great job and I don't necessarily need motivation for that mm-hmm. because I'm my immediate reaction were these guys were dicks. I don't like them. Why are they being mean to Ralph Macchio who I really like? So <laughs> it works. It works yeah. really well. But you know, if you want that backstory, you can watch Cobra Kai, which, <laughs> which kind of gives you the whole, the whole, the whole shtick. This is my understanding. So yeah, but it's, but in a, I, I think they do a good job. But then of course that brings us to, easily my favorite character sure mr miyagi who just like within seconds of being on screen is this like magnetic screen presence he's so good and obviously the miyagi-esque wise leader teacher has become kind of a running trope after the fact but it's so easy to see why because they do such a great job with him and and Pat Morita does such a great gives such a great performance. It's so subtle at times, but like so effective. Just like a bonsai live inside the tree. Ants are living inside of you. No, I agree. I think I you know, when you think about what else was coming out this year with Asian American characters, right? You have Long Duck Dong in Sixteen Candles, and you have, right. and you have sh- and you have Short Round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Okay, yeah, so right. not maybe not the best representation, right? Well, certainly, right. Long Duck Dong, like he famously kind of regrets even making that movie, I believe. Right, it's right. So you know, at the time, you know, this was a really significant role to just simply give an an Asian American character some, you know, dignity, backstory, yeah. um, you know, fully, fully rounded character and treat the actor with, <laughs> with some respect. 
and give give them the opportunity to like show a full range of 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 emotion. So like you know, a couple things that that I was reading up on. So when they were were coming up with the credits for the film, producers or maybe the maybe the director I can't remember suggested that Pat Morita use his given name mm. Noriyuki in the credits to seem more Japanese because he. He exclusively went by Pat. Yeah, because I noticed Pat was in quotation marks. Right. And then when right. I did a little bit of research, I understood that he was previously in shows like Happy Days. Yes. But again, very much playing this like Asian sort of stereotype character. Right. Right. So, you know, there's definitely a bit of that of sort of playing up his Japanese lineage. However, he was born in America, you know, was a stand up comic. That that accent is not at all his accent. He speaks with no accent in real life. Oh, okay. So okay. But you know, I think the the flip side of that that makes it kind of complicated is that Pat Morita really identified with this character and said, you know, thought of it as like he knew people like this, right? Mm. And uh, you know, like relatives who had you know some similar experiences, and and so like the accent and that kind of stuff is based on people he knew. Right. Right. So it's not like it's, it comes out of, you know, pure stereotype. It is something something that he felt like he was representing a, a very specific experience of, of Japanese immigrants that he knew in his life. And I will say it, it doesn't feel like it's like it's not like a Mickey Rooney. Right. Right. Level of Asian or even a you only live twice level of Asian stereotyping. But yeah, that's that is interesting that he chose to portray it in, in as as authentically as possible. Right, right. And and I mean, I, I think, the, but then again, it's a really complicated role. So like, you know, now, and, and sort of like when this movie came out, of course, it kind of generated all these new stereotypes, right. you know, of that, that were used to like harass Asian Americans. So it's like, it's really complicated. I think, you know, at the time, it was it was groundbreaking in some ways, you know, but also like, this is the thing about representation of all kinds is like when you only have a handful of roles. Exactly. They become the only uh, way that Asian Americans are represented in cinema. And now finally, finally, I think we're starting to see many, many more different kinds of experiences represented in cinema in a more diverse way. And that means that there, there is more room for just like, does you know, not every Asian American character has to know martial arts. Like, no, that, just exactly. that kind of BS. Which um, I mean, let's, be honest the simpsons like has yeah guilty obviously there's there's struggles with the representation within the simpsons but you're right and like literally two years later big trouble in little china comes out which is like yeah it's a fun movie but like there's brutal very different representation of asian american characters than karate kid is is portraying so right it's complicated and it but that was part of i think part of the charm was that this guy was he was not a caricature he felt authentic and he was treated with the respect that i think he should have been treated with he really did resonate as coming away from it as certainly like one of the highlights for me of this whole film right and you have this instant sort of chemistry between mr miyagi and daniel i think mm-hmm. in that in that first scene where Daniel's having a tough time and Mr. Miyagi fixes his bike and invites him in and starts teaching him about bonsai trees. And there's this kind of, it's really tender, you know? But how do I know if my fixture is the right one? If come from inside of you, always right on. Yeah, that scene was so beautiful. Like, I, yeah, I love that. I mean, I also just, it made me want to go out and buy a bonsai tree, but... <laughs> 
but it was. I thought that was such a beautiful sequence. And I think anybody who's had that sort of experience in their lives of, of an older person passing on their knowledge, it really resonates. It was one of those moments that in the wrong hands could feel like a tropey Hollywood contrivance and yet here it actually I think it works really really nicely and really sort of establishes these characters for what's about to come oh don't forget the tree must practice oh thank you sayonara sayonara hey thanks again I'll see you and what a good segue. So, you know, <laughs> as the story kind of continues, right, uh, the bullying starts to escalate. And, you know, he has several interactions with, with the Cobra Kai. But Mr. Miyagi finally steps in at the Halloween dance, which we'll talk about. I love that sequence. He kicks their asses and then they go to the karate dojo and he challenges the Cobra Kai to a tournament in exchange for leaving Daniel alone until the tournament. And so he sort of buys Daniel some time to not be bullied. So then once that deal is struck, Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach Daniel karate, but Daniel's a little surprised by the training techniques. What? Wait, what do I have to watch? I, 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 remember, dear, no question. Yeah, but I... Right. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Yeah, the, and this is where you get the sort of a bunch of sequences that again, have permeated the pop culture. And I have never seen Karate Kid, but I am familiar with Wax On, Wax Off. I'm familiar with the flying crane kick. But yeah, I, you know, I love the scene where it comes together, where he's been teaching Daniel all these things and he thinks he's wasting his time. And he's like, why aren't you going to teach me how to punch? Why aren't you going to teach me how to fight? And then basically Mr. Miyagi gets him to do everything and then shows him that he's actually been teaching him all along. And it's just, it's... It's just in his own way. And I, I I love the way that that resolves. Like you knew it was coming, but they handled it really well. And obviously Daniel takes to it immediately and he's very good and that's great. I was surprised at how much I love that sort of, not turn. twist, but yeah, that turn that mm-hmm. has been done a million times since. Right, right. I One of the things I wrote down in my notes when that moment comes, right? Because it's like Daniel's, he's, he's like, painting the fence, he's sanding the floor, he's waxing the cars, he's painting the house, and he's getting more and more frustrated throughout this whole thing. And then finally, yeah, Mr. Miyagi shows him that actually he's been learning how to block through muscle memory. And it's like it's like one big trust fall exercise. Exactly. Right? Where he's like, you're just gonna have to trust me. And it's gonna feel like you're just you're just falling, but I'm gonna catch you. That's the kind of that's the the lesson that he learns. And yeah. and in that moment, gains a lot of respect for what Mr. Miyagi's trying to teach him, which I, it's a really, it is actually really good. I mean, again, there's a reason why it's been, you know, parodied and, and just kind of stolen so many times because it's, it's really effective in this film. It absolutely, absolutely it is. Yeah. Yeah. So just backing up. So the beginning of the sequence, right. When the bullying is still kind of escalating before they, they make any deals before the training, there's this scene at the Halloween dance which I actually think that the whole lead up to this and then and then how it resolves I think it's my favorite part of this movie cuz it just captures all of the all of the things that I think of when I think of this movie like the the performances the sort of balance of humor the karate you know the bullying it's just like it kind of brings it all together in this perfect way oh and the and the, the romance too hey come to the right place stranger 
Well, I mean, I literally laughed out loud when he walks into that dance dressed as a shower. Because yeah, exactly. He's like, I need to be invisible. And he's dressed as a, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. I already mentioned, like, I thought that was sort of the, the scene where I turned in terms of my feelings towards Allie because the romance there is so sweet. Mm-hmm. It also, th- there is a little bit of character development there. And I don't know if this was intentional or not, but there's the scene where Daniel's in the bathroom and one of the Cobra Kai's comes in talks to Johnny and Johnny's rolling a joint and he's, this is the bad guy. Like he's rolling a joint. Like he's, he's about to do something, you know, naughty. Whereas at the time, yeah. <laughs> at the time, yeah. yeah. Where, and again, you know, if you're, if you're looking at it like a uh, fast times at Ridgemount high, mm-hmm. that would make him the hero of the story. But because it's a movie for kids, that makes him the villain of the story. Right. But I thought that was just like an interesting little, like extra, extra little character beat of like oh he's bad he's doing drugs but but it is interesting too because in this scene like daniel goes you know totally under the radar at the beginning of this yeah and then he's the one who instigates this bullshit yes (laughs) yeah it's that classic you know boys will be boys right he if he had just not done that he could have saved himself a world Mm -hmm. of hurt but like but but that speaks to the that's another sort of character development thing too is that like well yeah this is the very beginning of act two by the end of Act Two, Daniel wouldn't do that. No, right? And like that's that's smart. I like that. I do also love that when he's running away, mm-hmm. Allie is the one who trips one of the Cobra Kai and then sort of right. causes the pilot to buy Daniel a little bit more time to get away. I thought that right. was a nice a nice touch. Yeah, one of the one of the moments right after that that I think is hilarious because it it is it just brings it to this kind of like really escalated place is he runs out into the street and causes a car crash. Yeah, I literally, I do. I was also like, oh, holy crap, that car like actually hit the other car. And yeah. Another one of those like laugh out loud moments of like, oh my God. Yeah, right. They went there. That's that's crazy. And then they finally catch up to him and Daniel gets like trapped up against a fence and they're kicking the crap out of him. He's like, barely, he's like losing consciousness. One of them literally says, it's enough. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. And Johnny is like, no, I gotta, I gotta yeah, be No sheriff. mercy. Yeah, no mercy. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, as he's kind of like passing out, Mr. Miyagi jumps over the fence and kicks the shit out of these high school students, which is uh, interesting. It's like, yep. it's a great sequence. But then you, when you think about it now, you're like, uh, this adult is like, hurting these children that's kind of weird but re- a really memorable sequence and again i just think it brings all of the elements of this movie together in a in a sequence that i think is like great front to back yeah no i i really enjoyed this whole this whole portion it's it's sort of from this point on that it starts to drag a little bit well not yeah. this point it's 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 after the training has sort of wrapped started up. it starts to get a little bit samey and and mm-hmm. and lags a little bit for me but I was really into it at this point. Yeah. And, and it sure. does a great job of like, again, it's that thing of it's, it's getting you super invested into the characters that I, even as a 33 year old, I was rooting for Daniel and thinking these Cobra Kai are dicks. So. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, you know, after this, you know, this is the sort of thing that finally gets Miyagi to step in a little further. He defends Daniel. And then the next day they go to the dojo and Miyagi strikes a deal with uh, Sensei Kreese, the head of the Cobra Kai, to lay off on Daniel until the tournament, and then they'll settle it there. Um, and I feel like this is a really common trope in these kinds of sports movies, right. because it ties the, the stakes of the sports 
to these personal stakes, right? Yes. So it's not just about winning the tournament because that would be kind of eh. It's like, no, we're like fighting for whether or not Daniel's going to be bullied for the rest of his life. <laughs> and also, you know, kind of like in a, in a like slightly more sinister aspect, they kind of su- suggest that like Mr. Miyagi's also going to, you know, get the shit kicked out of him right. too. Right. Which is pretty intense. Which, um, But what's also interesting is that, which is maybe the least believable part, is that they agree to it and they stick to it because there's like <laughs> multiple instances right. throughout the rest of the movie where they're like going to beat him up and they're like, no, 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 wait until the tournament. We can't do right. it now. We promised. <laughs> which is just not, that would never happen. But right, okay, right. we'll buy it. It's, it's the morality of the movie, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, exactly. It's like karate is about, you know, earning respect and not having to fight and et cetera, yes. et cetera. So the other thing that this, the wager really reminds me of is the wager in the dead putting society so let's listen to a clip from that if bart wins tomorrow you have to mow my lawn all right and if pod wins you have to mow my lawn Uh, and do a decent job of it for a change better yet you have to mow my lawn in your wife's sunday dress you have yourself a bet you jackanini this is kind of like the mirror image of this where you have these two adults making an agreement on behalf of two kids and in The Karate Kid, it's sort of like, you know, oh, well, Miyagi's trying to protect Daniel. Whereas in Dead Putting Society, you have Homer being this petty asshole in this episode. He he starts angry in this episode, and it, it just goes up from there. Yeah. He, there is not a scene where he is not yelling in this episode. And he's just being petty and jealous, and and the, the wager they make just kind of reflects that, right? So I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, Homer is being, again, it's early enough in the run of the show that they haven't fully developed Homer, but this is very much in the era of Homer and Bart are kind of enemies and don't respect each other, and Homer's kind of a crappy dad. And he just like, yeah, he he's basically setting his son up for possibly failure just to make Homer feel better about himself. Although I do love that scene where Homer is trying to get Bart to like take take the golf thing seriously and he's like give your putter a name <laughs> and, he, and he like mr putty and he's like no take it seriously <laughs> what are you doing that putter is to you what a bat is to a baseball player what a violin is to the your guy that the violin guy now come on give your putter a name what come on give it a name mr putter no oh, you want to try a little harder son come on give it a girl's name Mom, your putter's name is Charlene. <laughs> it's just, it's, I don't know. Like, they're, it's one of those nice little Simpson esque runs that only they can do. So, so then the other, you know, after, uh, after the wager, you know, one of the sort of fun sequences we get is this date between Daniel and Allie at the golf and stuff, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, I love that. Such a super 80s location name. The whole, the whole scene is just like dripping with 80s. They go to the golf and stuff and have a, a great old time, you know, doing like bumper boats and <laughs> mini golf, <laughs> mini right? Golf, Relevant yeah. to the Simpsons. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I thought that was just a fun sequence. Very, very much felt of the era. Well, and again, speaking to the authenticity, which is like, the thing that sort of I keep hammering about this film. The thing I love about that is that like Daniel's mom picks them up and like takes them. Right. And I get that there's there is some plot reason for that because they want to show that she's got the like beater car and the the rich dudes are going to make fun of him for that. But it's also like this really realistic moment that you wouldn't normally see in a movie. Like you never discuss like how do these kids have so much money? How do they get from point A to point B? 
Whereas this, his mom has to take, because of course she does. Like he, they're teenagers. They don't, they don't yeah. have their driver's license yet. And that's like, I remember that was me. Like we lived in different cities. So if we went to each other's houses, like our parents would have to drop us off and pick us up. Like that's, that was life. Right. Totally. And I think that speaks to, too, like one of the cool things with this movie is it shows a very different side of LA too. Mm-hmm. Right. Because usually, especially with teen movies like LA, yeah, everyone has a car. Of course everyone has a car, right? Yeah. And and it's like, it tends to be very glamorous, very like cool, sunny, it's beaches. Yeah. No, it's like, this is like Reseda and the golf and stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It, it's, yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that. Yeah. The other, the other sort of like fun play on the karate kid in Dead Putting Society is this scene where you have Lisa, you know, sort of mentoring Bart, right? Right. And, you know, she she's, yeah, she's going to teach him a bit about golf. But they also go to the library and take out all these books. Some of them are about golf. And then one of them is uh, a book of, of philosophy from uh, Lao Tzu, who is a Chinese philosopher. So, you know, she takes him to these sort of beautiful places in Springfield that, you know, you never see in any other episodes. <laughs> but there's like a lake and there's like a mountain, and which kind of actually remind me more of the Karate Kid 2 and 3, which have more, you know, that's probably where some of the budget goes is the right. locales of those movies. So this is where that that awesome uh, <laughs> sequence happens where she's sort of teaching him these riddles, right, of, of philosophy. I think it's called a koan is is what those are technically called in like Zen Buddhism. Well, let's just let's let's just take a listen to some of Lisa's wisdom that she's imparting to Bart. I want you to shut off the logical part of your mind. OK, embrace nothingness. You got it. Become like an uncarved stone. Done. Bart! You're just pretending to know what I'm talking about. True. Well, it's very frustrating. I'll bet. Bart, I have a riddle for you. What's the sound of one hand clapping? Piece of cake. No, Bart. It's a 3,000-year-old riddle with no answer. It's supposed to clear your mind of conscious thought. No answer? Lisa, listen up. Ugh. Let's try another one. If a tree falls in the woods and no one's around, does it make a sound? Absolutely. But Bart, how can sound exist if there's no one there to hear it? Ooh, it is time. One of the things that I think is so interesting here is, again, we're super early in the run of The Simpsons. We're not even, we're what? We're not even into the second half of season two. So at this point, there's maybe been 20 episodes. And already they're kind of laying the seeds for Lisa being wise beyond her years. Right. But then also like her sort of influence of like Eastern mysticism, because as we know, later on, she becomes a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. I thought that was super interesting that even this early on, and maybe that's just a coincidence. I don't know. And I, I love Lisa. Like I've grown as I've gotten older. Lisa has become one of my favorite characters because she is sort of the best written in a sense because she's the least cartoony. I love the relationship we get to see with her and Bart in this and that she is this sort of like wise beyond her years character and we're getting the beginning of that foundation for her character for years to come. Right, totally. So and one of the other things I love about this scene is Bart's response to her her first riddle, right? Where, Where, as you say, he's he's like, listen, this is what the sound of one hand clapping sounds like. Yeah. Right. And and she gets very like, this is a thousand year old, uh, you know, riddle. And apparently that that is a George Meyer joke. Okay. Um, who is one of the writers that's that's known for his suspicion of institutions and traditions. So he might be kind of actually poking a little fun at this. Uh, totally. You know, this tradition of, of being like, 
yeah, but actually, like, is this really a riddle? And the interesting thing is, so the second riddle that she that she says about a tree falling in a forest, which I, I actually wonder if this episode had something to do with how popular that that riddle became. Right. Because I feel like it's everywhere now. Yeah, totally. Uh, but but I wonder if if it actually was before this episode or if this helped repopularize it. But I looked into it a little bit. I could not find any evidence of this being a real koan. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, I didn't dig that deeply, but, you know, Wikipedia and, and you know, Googling and all that kind of stuff. And what I found was that the first appearance, according to Wikipedia, is in the Chautauquan in 1883. And it actually came with a very clear answer, ironically, which is no. <laughs> because sound only exists through our senses, right? It's only, it's only a human sense or an animal sense. And so otherwise, it's just vibrations in the air. That's the like scientific answer, supposedly, right? But of course, it has been debated over the years. Apparently, quantum physicists like to uh, debate about this. So like Einstein and Niels Bohr were like having conversations about this. So I thought that was kind of interesting that number one, that's not actually like something from Zen Buddhism necessarily. And then also, it actually has an answer historically, whereas the sound of one hand clapping doesn't, but they give it one in the episode. Interesting, yeah. So this whole section, this the sort of, Act two really ends uh, with this scene between, this real, again, a really beautiful scene, I think, between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi. He comes to uh, Miyagi's house late at night, and he finds Mr. Miyagi pretty drunk, which, again, pretty surprising for this kind of movie, right? To have yeah. this wise mentor character, this is a kid's movie, and he finds him drunk. He's actively drinking on, on yeah. screen. In fact, he offers Daniel a drink. Yeah, I, re- I thought that was a little, I was like, oh. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. But yes. then again, this is also a grown man who beat up a bunch of teenagers. So you know. Right. Right. You know, uh, it's an interesting character. So what did you what did you think about this scene? And do do you do you feel like you understood the f- sort of subtext of like what was going on? I mentioned that the film started to sort of lose steam a bit for me in Act Two, and I think this is one of the instances where. Unfortunately, because of how lengthy the film ends up being, at this point, I didn't appreciate it as much as a result because I was kind of like, I was, you know, I was a bit tired and I, I was like, okay, can we kind of like, I truthfully, I was like, can we get to the, the big finale? Which is unfortunate. I, I do think it's a, it's an interesting scene and I almost would like to revisit it. And I think it's one of those classic things of like, I have a very short attention span when I watch movies at home, unfortunately. So I imagine in a theater where like my my attention is much more focused, it maybe would have played better. But I did, I, you know, I appreciated that the performances were excellent. Like again, Pat Pat Morita is wonderful in this scene. But I was sort of like, why is this here? It it just felt like maybe at least on this first watch, and maybe if I were to watch it again, it would resonate more. But I just, yeah, this was this was definitely at that point of the film where I kind of felt like we needed to start moving, moving up. Mo- yeah. Like we needed to get yeah, to the next, up the, steam. the next act. Like it, I was kind of like, where are we going with this? Right. So, cause like, this is around the time in a Rocky movie where you'd be like deep into the training montage. Right. That's, that's kind of my feeling. You'd be building up. So I, I think what was interesting was because like, it's very clear that this is Daniel's movie. This 
And again, I, it's so interesting because I keep saying if this were made today, this is one of those scenes that feels more like a scene that I would expect in a modern film where yeah, we're getting totally. that sort of like backstory of this other character. And I appreciate it because like, I think Miyagi is an interesting character and, and he deserves to have a moment. Mm-hmm. But because the rest of the film is so Daniel centric, it, it kind of just felt a little out of place. Right. So, I, I, yeah, I think, you know, so like one of the things that I have always remember our high school film teacher, Mr. Douglas, telling us was that like, when, if you're noticing something in a movie that you don't like, that's bad, that's annoying or whatever, they lost you five minutes early. Yes, absolutely. And like, I think that this is a good example of that, where it's like, I, I agree, actually, that I think the middle of this movie is a little long. And I think part of it is that it doesn't follow the rule of threes. I know that's like a, a kind of a silly rule. And, you know, there's yeah. good reasons why you don't want to do that. But like, you know, you have this repetitive structure around the chores, right? Yeah. He does, he does a chore and, you know, and then it like goes into the night and then he's asked to come back the next day, right? And he does four chores. And honestly, if they had cut one of those out, you'd have a tighter middle part yeah. and and maybe you wouldn't be as tired by the end of this because I don't think that all four of them necessarily contribute to the the sort of overall effect. Well, and I think it's also just it's it's where it lands in the narrative of like we come out of this this sort of moment twist as it were. Yeah. It's not really a twist, but this moment of Daniel thinks that Allie has given up on him and is is going to is back with Johnny. And yeah. he's sort of embarrassed because he knocks the guy over with the spaghetti. So he's he's upset about his girlfriend or whatever they are. His girlfriend has chosen somebody else, but then he's also embarrassed himself in front of all these rich people. So he's sort of at his lowest. And then we sort of we get this scene, which is like, I don't know. I think I think part of me just felt like we needed where Daniel was. It just I don't know. There's something about it that just sort of didn't didn't jive with me. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I mean, I think because like the what this does in the story is that like after this Daniel kind of finishes his training right and I think what you're supposed to get from this scene is that this is sort of what inspires him to keep going right even though he embarrassed himself he's at this low point in in his story but it is a little bit of a weird scene for that because again in sports movies often you'd have the coach giving the inspiring speech right yeah or you'd or you have the training sequence or something like that that's kind of like ramping you up and instead you have like a low moment and then another really low moment and and daniel takes something interesting away from it but it, it happens with almost no dialogue well i think the other thing that bugs me about it is that it serves essentially no story purpose mm-hmm. yes there's the nice moment that we'll get to in act three with the keychain of the dog tags but apart from that, we never come back to this. Miyagi doesn't mention his wife or his child or the internment camps. It's just like, it's this sort of moment that kind of, it's it's interesting because it makes this character more complex, but then nothing comes from that complexity. Yeah. And I think, I think that's yeah. why it's such, it just, it's not a bad scene. It just feels out of place because I don't understand necessarily its purpose. Yeah, I think I think that there is also like some character development that happens with Daniel in this scene a little bit. And it, it's mostly reflected at the end, which is when he bows mm. to to Mr. Miyagi as he's leaving. He's sort of like on his way out and then he pauses and he turns around and he bows. And I think it's like obviously he's he's appreciative of Mr. Miyagi teaching him karate and all this kind of stuff. But but 
maybe up to that point, he didn't really respect him in a, right. in a deep kind of way. And seeing that he won a Purple Heart and that he had this really tragic personal history gave him sort of some new appreciation for the, who this person is. And also maybe maybe that's it. It's it's some inspiration to overcome adversity, I think is kind right. of what he's what he's supposed to come away from that scene with is like, well, if you went through that, I can get through having some spaghetti on me yeah. in front of some rich people. Like I can do this. Well, the scene that resonated more with me because mm-hmm. that's sort of what your question was, is like, did this resonate? Was the scene that all that happened shortly thereafter the the birthday party or the birthday scene. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Where Miyagi makes this cake for him, which is this really nice gesture. And then Daniel realizes, oh, oh, my mom was going to surprise me with a cake. Like, I got to go. I got to go see my mom. And Miyagi offers him one last gift, which he's allowed to pick one of the cars that he spent all this time cleaning and waxing. Right. Oh, no, no. Hey. I told men feeling chosen. Oh, wow. Oh, Mr. Miyagi. I can't believe it. Oh. Oh, wow. What a gift. And I thought that was such a beautiful moment. It's a testament to Machio's performance here that, like, he it feels so genuine. It feels so authentic. But it's got this beautiful button at the end where he's like, You're the best friend I ever had. And Mr. Miyagi says to him, Are you pretty okay too? And I love that. I, it was just like, I laughed. It was just such a sweet moment. It, it, I think that sequence for me works better. That fit sort of the everything else within the, the context of the film. So yeah. I, I, I thought that was a really beautiful scene. For sure. And I think that like these two scenes are really why Pat Morita was nominated for Best Supporting Actor mm-hmm. at, the, at the Oscars is, is really like this part of the story where you have this sort of tragic character and the tenderness that he sort of treats Daniel with um, is really is just really touching. Yeah. So that kind of brings us into Act Three, where the story is ramping up. After this sort of inspiring moment, Daniel finally completes his training. He finally learns how to punch and to kick after learning only how to block, including Mr. Miyagi's crane technique, which he saw him kind of do on the beach before and was like, holy shit, how do you do that? And then Daniel and Miyagi and Ali, they all go to the tournament together. Miyagi and Ali are in his corner cheering him on. Um, and his mom. His mom is there too. And his mom's there. That's was true. a really nice, a nice it's true because because you know you in these movies you do often see characters like you know the mom at the beginning just kind of disappear exactly yeah. um, so it was nice to like bring that full circle we, we watch Daniel and Johnny the lead Cobra Kai hoodlum rise through the ranks of of the tournament together and we get this wonderful montage scored by Joe Esposito's magnificently very very eighties hit you're the best. Which is, it's a great, it is a great montage. It's funny because then when you see the scoreboard of, I'm like, it seems like there was a lot more fighting going on than there are <laughs> like spots on this board, but okay, like whatever, I don't care. But yeah, I, 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 that whole sequence was was great. Right, totally. And then, and then we get to the final match. And of course, Daniel's able to overcome Johnny's dirty tricks 
by using Miyagi's crane technique. Can we just talk about the fact that like these dicks practically break the guy's leg? Oh yeah. Face he's the one guy's disqualified. Okay, fair enough. And then the whole thing is like you have 15 minutes to recover and they are about to award Johnny the the sort of the trophy by default and then Ralph Macchio comes out and is like no and he's limping and he's going to do the fight and so they start fighting. And then Johnny like multiple times either like kicks him in the shin or punches him in the knee and like the refs are just like yeah okay no worries like yeah how is this guy not being disqualified like i don't get it i i, I mean i get it it's a kids movie and right. it's for plot the reasons. rules are a little loosey-goosey but yeah though, the rule, sure. i was i was kept thinking i was like how is this guy keep getting away with this yeah they kind of pull the same trick in the third movie but the rules are a lot clearer. So ah, you're kind okay. of, you kind of like understand how he's getting away with it because there are warnings and that kind of stuff. But yeah, in this one, it's very, very loosey goosey. And of course, the reason that they have to do this is so that it seems like Daniel's down and out. There's no possible way he can win yeah. because his one leg is, is busted. However, of course, that means he can do the flying crane. He kicks Johnny in the face. He wins the tournament. And then the movie just ends abruptly which yeah. I was shocked by. I was like, wait, that's it? Like, literally, he wins. He gets the trophy. Johnny runs up to him and is like, you're okay, actually, which yeah. felt so out of place. Yeah. And then it cuts to a freeze frame of Mr. Miyagi and the credits roll. And I was, I mean, don't get me wrong. I thought the finale was fantastic. The, again, the montage and the way they've built everything up and how big a dicks they're being to him. I was super invested, which I was actually quite surprised that I was so invested by the end. So it, it works really well. And I wouldn't say the ending is unsatisfying because like the hero wins and I'm glad. But normally there would be some sort of wrap up. But no, nope, he just wins the trophy right. and the movie ends. And I was like, oh, OK, well, I guess that's it. It's an interesting choice. It's like at the end of it, I guess they were just kind of like, well. I think we've said all there is to say. Yeah. You know, like, I, which is really, it's really unusual. Uh, you know, and I think, I feel like, you know, in some ways this movie is very formulaic. Mm -hmm. But then, but then it, every once in a while, there's something like that where you're like, wow, you'd never see that now. No. There would have to be like a full denouement where we like get to talk to all the characters and, you know, and Al Ali, I mean, like Ali just like is yeah, there, exactly. but, but I guess like in some ways that's kind of like the resolution of their story is that she comes to the tournament. Yes. Right? Like yes. That's kind of the thing is like at the end of it, they found balance, right? That's a big theme throughout the movie. Right. Yeah. That's a whole huge theme. And, and, and also they've like, they've addressed their issues head on. That's also a big thing in this movie. Yep. And, and then she's in his corner and like symbolically that's kind of, all right, they, they figured that out. Mom is also there. That's a good thing. So it's like all those things are kind of wrapped up before the fight, but it's still very unusual. Yeah, like I keep saying, I've said this so many times throughout this, if this were made today, there would still be another, at least another half hour of movie wrapping up all those loose ends or tying up all those story beats. Like it's it's so weird. Yeah. I, I don't think it's necessarily, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily bad. It was no. just very unexpected that Surprising. literally- he gets the trophy and the movie ends. And I was like, oh, right. Okay, well, there we go. And I, totally. you, you, it's nice that you end on this beautiful shot of Pat Morita. And yeah, the expression on his face is actually like really great. It's, it's, per, it's the on perfect point. freeze frame to end on. But yeah. uh, I just, that really surprised me. Yeah, totally. So, all right. So let's back up and talk about a few, like a few moments in, in greater detail. So okay, yeah. At the beginning of this of this act, we have the training montage, right? Which is kind of a staple of all of these different kinds of movies. 
Rocky, of course, yeah. but like lots of sports movies. Even actually, I believe Lean on Me, another Avildsen movie, mm -hmm. which is about inner city school. It's one of those movies yep. probably helped start that trend. It also has a training montage in it. So you can kind of, you know, it's this trope that's used a lot, you know, famously in uh, Team America, we get the, the sort of like epitome of that yeah. parody. But how did you feel like it went here? I mean, like, you know, as an editor, I, you know, I'm curious to hear what you thought of how, how this montage comes together, because it's not that long. Yeah, it, it's funny because you, I do, it doesn't actually stick out in my mind at all. Interesting. Because it's short. And I, I think part of it, too, is that the montage at the of the fight with the aforementioned Esposito, you're the best. You're the best. That sticks out in my mind because you've got yeah. you get like the the banger of a song and the great right. montage. And in a Rocky movie, like again, I don't I, having never seen the movie, but I'm familiar with you gonna fly now and the, yeah, yeah. beating up the meat and stuff. So I feel like because the montage is short and it doesn't have the accompanying hit song from the soundtrack to the Karate Kid. It just, it kind of, it not to say it's not working, it it, it works. That may be why it works. Yeah, it, it's nice that it's not 20 minutes of him doing, you know, attempting the crane kick and failing and attempting the crane kick right. and failing. Like, because that's how you would normally structure it is like, he's trying to do the move, he can't do it. And then we see him like doing some more stuff. And then he tries to move again, he can't do it. And you see him doing some more it's, it's so it's handled really, really efficiently. Economically, again, yeah, yeah. And economically, like it's economical filmmaking. So I think it works. It's just it's interesting that it doesn't stick out in my mind. Right, right. And it is interesting that instead you do get the tournament montage, which it it does kind of play that same role, right? As mm. as what you'd expect in a Rocky movie because of the soundtrack and also the kind of just the way it's cut and everything. The sort of like you get this action and then you get like the facial yeah. reactions to what's going on. <laughs> and you get, you get the very clear American casted kids not being all that great at karate. And then the kids who were clearly karate students and were hired for their karate acumen, like flipping through the air and doing all sorts of crazy stunts. Yeah. And then somehow not winning, which is like, right. you're like, what the, f okay, sure. Right. And it's funny you should mention that. So Daryl Vidal Who's, who is one of the, the people who's kicking ass in the tournament, and then, and then of course, magically gets beat near the end, yes. is actually, I believe, he was Pat Morita's stunt double in oh, this movie. Oh, okay. So that's why he's so damn good at karate. And sense. he actually helped come up with the idea of the crane kick. Oh, so, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So so Kamen, the, the writer of the, of the movie, kind of came up with the idea of there being this sort of like magical technique. Right. And, and really wanted to have this moment of seeing Miyagi do something that's almost impossible on the beach, right? And right. being like, wow, that's just cinematic, right? But Daryl Vidal actually came up with what that thing is. That's my understanding. Interesting. Well, I actually want to dig a little bit more into that crane kick moment. Again, speaking to the sort of the film just ends super abruptly. Even right. that, like the fight between Johnny and, and Daniel is pretty intense. As I mentioned, like there he's being a real asshole and it's, it's intense. And, and you start to, I genuinely did not know if this was going to end with him succeeding. You know, there, you have that beautiful moment where Mr. Miyagi tells him like, you, you've proven your point. You don't need, you don't need to fight. It's fine. And I, I weirdly, agreed with daniel when he said what are you talking about like if i don't do this they will have won they will have yeah. forever won i have to win 
which I normally would not necessarily agree with, but for whatever reason, because I guess because they're such dicks, I was like, yeah, he's right, Mr. Miyagi. He has to fight. I mean, the the great thing about that scene too, though, is that like, this is the whole thing about balance, right? Miyagi's right. sort of saying that like, you know, all you need to do is achieve balance. Yes. And and Daniel's argument back to him is he'll never find balance if he doesn't yes, do this. which was beautiful. And, and I think that that's the that's the thing that gets Miyagi to kind of agree to it in the end is like, you actually have learned the lesson and you really believe that this is how you're going to achieve that. And I, I thought that was great. Yeah. I, I, so I thought that was beautiful, but going back to the final, the fight, you get, they're, they're tied and you know, the, the referee says, whoever gets the next point will win the championship. Right. And, and there, there's the big standoff and da, 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 and then just out of nowhere, flying crane kick, kicked yes. in the head, gets the point done. And I was like, Oh, okay. Because normally you would have the music is getting tense, the slow motion, a close up on Johnny's, you know, breathing sweats dripping down his head. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. a close up on on Daniel and his leg is shaking and oh, is he gonna be able to do it? And then all right. the slow motion crane kick. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Like the Matrix. Yeah. But there's none of that. It's just like it's an abrupt kick to the head and he wins. Right. And I this is the thing that I love about it. So like there's no time dilation. Right? No, like none. which is which is what you'd expect, right? And so part of that is actually speaks to how this scene was made. So the whole tournament, my understanding is that th- there's an actual karate tournament happening in the background. Oh, so they actually recruited a bunch of people to actually fight in this in this gymnasium okay. while they're shooting it. So so that's part of why it feels like that's what's going on, right? Um, it's it's not just totally made up. But then you have the actors in the foreground actually doing the the fights that, that are on film. On top of that, there's like a ton of cameras that are actually on set at this moment. Right. There's, uh, in, uh, in this oral history I was reading, uh, one of the actors was saying that he thinks there was about nine or so cameras hidden in the bleachers. Oh, wow. Where you're capturing a lot of things in real time simultaneously. And then it's being cut together by Abelson, who, again, has an editing background. And that entire final sequence from like the semifinals where Daniel gets his leg seriously injured all the way to that final kick was shot in sequence like theater. Oh, interesting. So it was happening live basically with this audience. One of the, one of the cool things that is like a slightly different version of this, of this dilation though, that I saw, I think in the, in the documentary about Abelson is that, the actual choreography for the fight is even simpler than what you see on screen. Mm. And Ableton actually doubles up some of the sequences in the editing in gotcha. order to make it look more complex than it actually right. is. And okay. so so I, I thought that was just awesome. And again, a very different way of approaching these kinds of sequences, to your point, than like what you, you'd see often. Yeah, it's just I, I thought it was such a different take on it's ironic because you get the very 80s montage leading up to it but then like i said the finale plays out unlike any other sort of climactic fight i've seen in any film and that's part of the magic of it too because it's like that shot where he kicks him in the head it looks like he kicks him in the head it really looks like and it it is and it is uh ralph macchio doing that kick and like that's part of what makes it so memorable to me is that there's no sort of like you know, and then we cut to a close up of the leg. We cut to a close up of the head. It's like, no, you just see it all happen. And that's wow. It is yeah. like theater, right? Like you've seen something impossible happen in front of you, you know. So let's talk about the the leg injury a little bit here. Yeah. So, so, you know, it reminds me in Dead Putting Society, right? You know, when they're in the mini golf finale, right? 
and it's it's like a dead heat, right? Flanders actually yells out to Todd, "Mercy is for the weak, Todd," and that that's definitely a reference to this moment where they're in the semifinal, and basically Sensei Kreese tells one of the other Cobra Kai schmucks to injure Daniel intentionally to take him right. out of commission, right. and so he does, and it's a pretty. It's actually a pretty, again, a good, good choreography where he jumps up in the air and it looks like he just lands right on on Daniel's yeah, knee. Yeah, great sound and, design too. Because yeah. I was like, ooh, that yeah. sounded like he. I literally was like, well, that's must be how this movie ends. Like he's right. down for the count. There's no way he's coming. It's like Rocky. This. It's yeah. like Rocky. One of my least favorite moments in this movie, which they set up earlier though, is that <laughs> Mr. Miyagi has some kind of magical healing thing. Close yeah, it's it's like it's the moment for me where it takes this sort of like, you know, there's a little bit of sort of a mystical thing, spiritual thing. And this takes it into outright like supernatural territory totally. in a way that I didn't like. And particularly because it's a, it's an Asian American character, it felt like, you know, OK, now we're getting into like the, the big trouble, little China search. Yeah. And that I didn't like that so much. But, you know, it's kind of a plot device as well. Yeah, I I, I understand your reservations about it. And to me, I was just like, I, I'm letting it pass because like, I, again, at the risk of sounding reductive, I'm like, it's a kid's movie. Like, it's fine. Yeah. yeah but yeah. you're right. It, it does for a film that is otherwise very grounded in reality, I would say. Right. right. It, it's, it does feel a little bit hokey, but. Right. It could have been, you know, there probably was a way that they could have done it without it. But, you know, yeah, again, it's like it was just a little moment that kind of took me out of it for a second. It's funny because they do build it up because he, you know, he claps his hands together and then the music starts to rise. Swell, yeah. Yeah. So it's, a, you know, it like you said, it's a bit of a contrivance, but I'll, it's I'll kind let of, it slide. Yeah, it's kind of where, like, you know, economical storytelling becomes cheap storytelling. A yes. Little bit. It's one of those things where the strengths outweigh the weaknesses. And so I was like, totally. that's a moment that I don't love. But but the rest of that sequence is so compelling that I it, it kind of carries me through. Yeah. The other the other moment I love, and again, it's been parodied to death. There are bands named after it, is Sweep the Leg, right? Yes. Which, so, you know, they're in the final fight. They're sort of neck and neck. And Daniel, you know, hits Johnny in the face or, or he falls on his face. And he has to go over to his sensei. And Sensei Kreese looks at him in the eye and says, sweep the leg. And the thing I love about this moment is Johnny's face Mm. in the moment. Because he, you know, throughout the whole movie, he's a total dick, right? And he does all sorts of terrible things. He beats the crap out out of Daniel. But in that moment, he looks scared. Yeah. And I love that. Because again, it's like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Of like all these very small characters. Johnny doesn't say much in the movie. He's not in the movie that much. No. But to have that the the look on his face be a look of fear in that moment, it sort of it it harkens back to the whole thesis, which is like teacher, you know, the teacher. There's yep. no such thing as bad students. There's only bad teachers. You know, the the sacred pact between teachers and students. Teachers say, student do all that kind of stuff is summed up in that moment where you have this scared kid who an adult is telling him to like injure this kid so he can win a karate <laughs> tournament. Yeah, and and he's and he hesitates and then he and then he says yes well and it's an again it's that economical storytelling of it's with a single look you say so much more than a monologue could ever say right exactly so i I did want to turn back to just the end of dead putting society for Mm. a second before we wrap everything up on this movie 
I just wanted to talk about the ending of that episode. So, you know, you have Bart and Todd. They're, they're you know, they similarly go through the whole golf tournament and it's just down to the two of them. And at the final hole, and it's, it's an Abraham Lincoln-themed uh, hole where his legs go uh, <laughs> out, out and back and out and back covering a hole to get to get through. And they both make it through and both of their balls are equally distant from the holes and they're both uh, standing there talking to each other. And let's just let's just hear what they have to say. This is pretty tense, isn't it, Todd? Yeah, my knees are shaking. I got butterflies in my stomach. But I guess it's Bill's character. Who wants to build character? Let's quit. Okay. So, you know, the kids basically come out of this with this really mature solution. They're like, you know, we're we're so stressed. We're so we have so much pressure on us. Who cares? Let's just call it a draw, right? And they've kind of learned this thing, kind of like Daniel, right, has learned this lesson about balance and all this stuff. And it it doesn't matter if you win. It's about respect and all this kind of stuff. (laughs) But Homer, (laughs) right, by contrast, insists on the absolute pettiest outcome of the wager, (laughs) which is that they both lost and therefore have to carry out. But not only that, Flanders Flanders says, well, it doesn't like there's no loser here. And Homer's like, oh, no. (laughs) Thank heaven neither of us has to go through with that silly wager. Put her there, pal. Oh, so you're going to welch on our bet. (laughs) What are you talking about? Neither boy lost. I got it right here in writing. The father of the boy who doesn't win has to mow the lawn in his wife's Sunday dress. But neither. I mean, we're both... I mean, you have to do it, too. It's a small price to pay to see you humiliate yourself. They Like, Homer is the one who's like, no, absolutely not. Even right. though I'm going to have to do it, it's you will, too. So it's worth therefore, it. It's Mutually worth- assured destruction. Yeah, it's, it is a very, <laughs> it's a silly ending. And it's also, I would say, probably, the, like, it's very out of character for Bart. In terms of, like, with the now 30 years history of the character. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that would ever happen, but we're early enough in the show that we buy it. Like we don't, we yeah. don't question it, but well, I think, I think the thing I, 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 that makes sense to me about Bart though, is that he, he doesn't like systems. Right. And, and true that kind of stuff. And it's this, this actually, I feel like is more of a sort of like Matt Groening as Bart moment. Right. Where, where he's sort of like, why am I doing this for my for what my dad cares about? And why am I participating in this stupid tournament when it's making me feel like crap? Screw this. Like, we're just going to strike our own path. Right. And that that that's that kind of that's, that yeah, kind of feels like reading. early part. Um, yeah. but, but I agree. Like, I don't know if we would get that ending now. No, we would have a much wackier ending where like, right, right. Mo flies in on a on a propeller <laughs> jacket. Maybe a more fun ending. Yeah, than the dresses. Yeah, no, that's it's it's true. It's it's yeah. it's a funny but very season two ending. Yeah, yeah, but I like I I do like again the moral core of the Karate Kid being turned on its head. Yeah, the parents being absolutely the pettiest people in the room while the kids actually are the ones that have sort of like learned the moral of the story. That's kind of a fun take. So the final shot of the karate kid, right? You, you already mentioned this is this freeze frame of Mr. Miyagi, right? Yep. And, and it is this really abrupt ending right after the climax, basically there's no Danny model. And that's partly because apparently there was an additional scene or maybe even additional couple scenes in the script. Mm. that that ended up being the beginning of the second movie. 
Ah, so that old chestnut. Right. So the second movie and the third movie, they take place literally right after each other. They they like Oh, so it's a it's a Casino Royale Quantum of Solace situation. Right. Like literally the moment picks up immediately. Okay, interesting. And, and so like it picks up with them leaving the tournament. And mm-hmm. what happens is they're in they they go out into the parking lot and Sensei Crease is like has Johnny Lawrence in like a chokehold and is oh. and is basically like berating him for losing and all this sort of stuff. Even the other Cobra Kai dicks are are like, Sensei Crease, you're gonna you're gonna kill him. Don't do it. They have actually a surprisingly geeky voice in that in that scene, which is kind of fun. <laughs> but like that was supposed to be how it ends, is like that happens, and then Miyagi and Crease have a showdown in the parking lot, and Crease mm. uh br- like tries to punch Miyagi, Miyagi dodges out of the way, and Crease puts his both of his fists one at a time through uh, car windshields oh, Jesus. and, and, and like, and like injures his fists. And then all of the Cobra Kai kids like throw down their belts and they're like, we're out of here. We're not Cobra Kai anymore. Right. And like Cobra Kai's done forever. That was kind of the, okay. supposed to be the thing, but they never shot that for the first movie. Cause I think they decided that they didn't need it. And it was kind of extra. And, and, you know, again, like that would have, felt too long yeah well i mean it wasn't necessary the movie is already over two hours like it's just over two hours so to add right that much extra we don't need right. all that extra stuff especially knowing that obviously now there's sequels and the sequels are going to cover it but yeah that makes a lot more sense knowing that now why it ends the way it ends but i i think they made the right call and so here's the other the other interesting thing about this too is that so they i think they got, i guess they decided this late in production i think and so they hadn't shot this those scenes, but they also hadn't shot anything else. And so what they had was basically the the final fight, and then that's it. They didn't have that shot of Miyagi. Right. And so Avildsen was like, we really just need this final shot. And the, the studio was like, no, we're not going to do reshoots. <laughs> and he insisted, right? Kept going, kept going, kept going. And eventually offered to pay for it himself oh, wow. to get it done. And they finally they finally said, okay, fine. <laughs> so that's how that shot got Interesting. in there. And that's it. And like I said, it's a beautiful, albeit abrupt, a beautiful way to end this story. Huh. That's that's really interesting. So yeah, that's that is the karate kid. So Adam, you know, again, as the newbie to the to the movie. What's your verdict on this? You know, would you recommend this to other people? Would, who would you recommend it to? So it's really interesting because part of the excitement about doing this is like, I've always wanted to have a show basically that was called Does It Hold Up? Does something that is popular, you know, is it is it good or is it just nostalgia? And so there's films that I've seen that I was very late to the game and seeing them and was like, absolutely this holds up there i understand why this thing is so good i think what i would say about karate kid is that while i am certainly not the target demographic (laughs) i was surprised at how much i did enjoy it i what's really interesting is that this is very much in in the same vein as a as a a kind of movie that they don't really make anymore which i can only sort of best describe as like the fun for the whole family adventure slash comedy. This is more of a coming of age than an adventure story, but I'm thinking about stuff like Ghostbusters. I'm yeah. thinking about stuff like Back to the Future, Indiana Jones. Goonies is maybe a little bit more on the kid's side, but like mm-hmm. these movies that they're not 
made for a child audience, but they're also not made for an adult audience. They literally are movies that no matter what age you are, you can appreciate it and enjoy it. And there's something for everyone. It's not, I think today it's like, it's either one or the other. Well, I think, I feel like, I feel like Pixar kind of picked up where that left off, but it's not the same flavor. No, but it's and the I same think, niche, you yeah, know, of but, like adults and kids. And but you even know. Pixar is kind of moved as as we've gotten older. I feel like mm-hmm. so has the target demo for Pixar movies. That's what I mean. Is like today, it's it's very much like you have children's movies and you have adults movies and nary the twain shall meet whereas mm-hmm. there was an era and i think like this is best typified by something like back to the future where right. it's like that that movie it doesn't matter how old you, you can be six and you're gonna love it you can be an adult and you're gonna love it it's just it's got something for everyone and while this at this certainly is more geared towards a younger audience because you know we kind of have said it's like rocky but for kids it it still has enough and it, because of the coming of age elements like it reaches into that thing that is in all of us that it's i still connected with it even if at times i was like oh this is a little hokey this is a little childish it worked it was effective and it got me i would i would suggest it more for a younger audience or again, like a parent, you know, you're sitting down for family movie night. What are we going to watch? This is a perfect movie because it's, you know, appropriate for all ages. It's not like hard and unbearable to watch like some kids movies can be. So, but I was surprised at like I texted you. I was like, that's a great ending. And I was really surprised by how invested I was in that final fight between Johnny and 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 Daniel. So yeah, I I did re- I enjoyed it. I it, I was surprised. It's not just nostalgia, and I would say it absolutely does hold up. Yeah, that's great to hear. I I I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's something that I remember very fondly as a kid. And to your point, it's like I I wasn't sure. Like, is this just nostalgia? It's it's got a bit of everything. It's funny. It's it's sincere. It's very naturalistic, but it's also a very beautiful movie in certain ways. You know, the reason to watch it is like if you really love uh, characters and sort of the relationships between like especially like two male characters um, in movies and you have you have a sort of uh, hankering for that kind of story. This really has that right. It's got a kind of father son dynamic or also just like two friends, too, because at times they're not quite father and son. And I think that that is really what carries this movie through. If you like sports movies also, I mean, this is like a classic sort of sports movie and does have a lot of the tropes of that genre. But I think, I think in a really, really at the top of the, of its form in that way. Yeah. It's something that you should definitely see once at least. Yeah, no. And I'm, like I said, I'm glad I finally now, because so much of pop culture has referenced it over the years. Like it's nice to finally have, feel like it's, it's, I've completed that chunk of my, you know, my pop culture card. It's interesting. I do. I, I I would be curious as to how it plays to a female audience, because like you yeah. said, it is very yeah. much like that classic as all movies were at that time, you know, male leads, male centric story, you know, but the female characters, while maybe not the best drawn, they're also not like to the film's credit. They never sexualize Allie. They never make her, you know, the dumb airhead like she's She's not as well drawn as everybody else, yeah. but she's not like she's not useless. Essentially. Just one one quick note on that, which I really appreciated was when they go to the tournament, Mr. Miyagi doesn't know the rules of the tournament. Right. And neither does Daniel. The only person that does is Allie. Yes. And again, that's just like another little like moment of complexity where she gets to to have like 
uh, another layer of her character drawn mm-hmm. out. But but yeah, I, I agree. There's a good, very good chance that uh, this movie does not hold up for uh, a lot of a lot of women who watch the movie or grew up ar- around this time as well. Um, so I won't lie. I'm not sure that I will be rushing to watch the sequels necessarily. I might, like I said, I might <laughs> save them to like watch them with my son one day. But, you know, if if you want to get more of this, like what are some of the suggestions for, you know, let's call it extra credit that people could could dig into if they love this and want, you know, want to get get some more. We've sort of alluded to the fact that there's some sequels and, yeah, and yeah. The, obviously the Rocky verse. Right. So so, yeah, the sequels are OK, I mean, I think they're better than you might expect. Don't watch the next Karate Kid. I haven't seen it, but it's not very well rated. Although it is Hilary Swank's breakout role, which is kind oh, of interesting. Yeah, right. Kind of random. I think probably, you know, like the obvious choice would be uh, to watch the TV series Cobra Kai, which is a really interesting take on this of like these characters, Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence, who again, small character in the first movie mm-hmm. in some ways, 30 years later or longer, I guess. And where are they now? And it's actually a pretty, it's kind of a depressing take a little bit. Okay. In that like Johnny Lawrence is kind of a bum. He didn't really ever go anywhere. Maybe sort of peaked in high school type thing and is kind of doing odd jobs. And Daniel LaRusso runs a car dealership. Oh. And is kind of, kind of like upper middle class. But also that one of the things I appreciated is that he kind of grows up to be a bit of a pretentious jerk. Like he's, He's not like a perfect guy. He's kind of up on his high horse all the time. Okay. And and Johnny Lawrence is like, you know, stuck in the 80s. That's kind of, that's the best way to describe his character. He's macho. He like literally is obsessed with 80s culture, 80s food, all that kind of stuff. And kind of can't get past that. And, and has a really a hard time struggling with like how culture has changed, what kids are like these days, all that kind of stuff. Thanks. So it's 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 very interesting. I think the biggest challenge is that you don't have Mr. Miyagi. Mm-hmm. Pat Morita passed away before that show started, but also like the connection to like Japanese culture is kind of missing, which feels kind of gross, but also it takes it in an interesting direction in that way because it really becomes about like, these two uh, adult white guys and you know what the, these childhood experiences meant to them and how they turned out. Uh, and how they treat their kids or other kids in their in their life. So it's, it's interesting. I, I I think it's worth digging into. Is it? It's so it's sort of like a, for lack of a better term, like is it more like a postmodern take on on yeah. the, on the series in a sense? That's a good. It's a good way of. I I would say that's a good way of describing it. However, it's definitely not. Like, is it mm-hmm. winking at the audience a lot or see, like, see, that's the thing. It's like, it's like, it's a, it's a remix. And in that way, it's, it is definitely, uh, very postmodern, okay. but it's also very sincere. Oh, okay. And so it's like, it, there, there are moments that are a little bit of a wink, but like at its heart, the characters and the way it treats the, the original three movies is very sincere. Okay. And like, and it also does not discriminate between the, tri- the trilogy. It will reference the part two and part three as much as the first movie, okay. which is really funny because, uh, you know, they're not in the pop culture in the same yeah, way that the yeah. first one is. So they use a lot of flashbacks and stuff. Anyway, it's a very, very interesting uh, show in that way. Hmm. Well, I may, I may, that I may have to check out. So is there anything else, you know, that's maybe a little more outside of like the Miyagi verse as it is? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I think, 
One other movie that really comes to mind is actually Bend It Like Beckham, oh. which, which is a movie that I, I really enjoy. And I think the thing, like there's a couple through lines here. It's obviously also a sports movie, yeah. but also, you know, it's a coming of age story. It's, and it's a little bit more contemporary. It's a female protagonist who's also a, from an immigrant family. So you just kind of, it just kind of brings it into, you know, like a more contemporary sort of right. setting and way of thinking about these stories. But it's also just a damn good movie in its own right. If, if you enjoy these sorts of coming of age stories, sports movies, I think that's a great one. Awesome. So that brings us to the part of the show where we pick our next entry for the Springfield Googleplex. I picked the first one. You picked this one. So I think it's now time that we do a film that neither of us have seen, which is not entirely true because this one we both have seen, but I've only seen it once. I really don't remember much of yeah, it apart here. from sort of the like the, the big classic moments that have been parodied essentially. So we're going to revisit Stanley Kubrick's classic 1964 satire, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It's a weird entry to come from Stanley Kubrick because if you've seen any of his other films, this is not like any of his other films. It has moments of true absurdity and wackiness. And I would say maybe Peter Sellers' best on-screen performance, although I might have to give that to Shot in the Dark, but it should be a fun one to revisit or visit for the first time. And we're back in the 60s for this one. So Mm -hmm. Definitely one that you can see, you know, direct influences on The Simpsons, but also kind of just like more indirect stuff too. Yeah, I I think what will make this one, what's so interesting about this is that it's less about the way that the Simpsons does like direct scenes from it and more just that sort of the satire and the, the style that sort of echoes as a result of this film being released. So I think it's going to be a, a fun one to, to take in. So I hope you, you enjoy it, our listener. And I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, our listener singular. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, Hi mom. <laughs> thank you so much, Mrs. Storing, for listening. No, but thank you so much for listening. And as always, if you like our show, please rate and you know tell your friends. Rate us online in your favorite podcatcher or whatever you're using. It helps because there's no point in doing this if no one listens, other than Nate's mom. I'll I'll do it for for Kathy. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Springfield Google Play. See you around the Plex. I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best of